Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to hear from Alain de Botton talking about his new book, The News, as part of our Ideas at the House series. Particularly impressed to see that you have managed to leave the only fine day in living memory uh, to come inside. Alain de Botton is one of the, a very, very select and small club of people that we welcome back here to the Sydney Opera House with something new, something interesting and exciting to tell his ever-increasing audience. He's someone who's made an art of using the lens of philosophy not only to understand our everyday lives, but also to engage with them and grapple with their difficulties. His work responds to this contemporary project of redefining meaning finding an ethical framework in which to live, uh, people looking at purpose and issues like that, when belief and institutions, uh, the significance of those is fading. His work has looked at all kinds of things, love, work, status, travel, architecture, and his ongoing interest in art, in art and aesthetics um, can be found in more detail in his recent book with John Armstrong, Art as Therapy. Today he's talking about the news something incredibly important in our lives. The business model for news is in turmoil, but its influence is increasing in proportion to those other kinds of institutions and belief fading away. It's something that we've been talking about at Ideas at the House and in our Festival of Dangerous Ideas and with a number of people like Alan Rusbridger or Julian Assange. Alain has a really unique approach to it, which uh, looks at, takes it very much from the point of view of us as readers and consumers of news, but who influence the news agenda and are also influenced by it. So he's going to be outlining his uh, fascinating arguments about that today. I would also encourage you, if you haven't already, go and have a look at the Philosopher's Mail, um, part of this project, which is a really fabulous um, uh, new news outlet, uh, enlightening, moving, hilarious. Um, it doesn't leave its readers, you know, you go, you'll never look at a newspaper the same way again. A really natural part of Alain's endeavour to bring the rigour of insight and philosophy uh, into relationship with our lives is that he's prepared to get out and talk about his ideas and is in fact one of the most eloquent and gifted communicators of ideas that you could find uh, anywhere. So it's a particular pleasure to welcome him here to the Sydney Opera House today, Alain de Botton. Well, hello. It's such a pleasure to be back here. Two years uh, since my last book, I was here with Religion for Atheists. Uh, Sydney is um, such a favourite destination for me, and the Opera House is, well, there's no nicer place and no nicer audience. So thank you so much for giving up your Saturday afternoon to come and listen to me. We're going to have fun. Now, look, there's a big world out there. We've shut ourselves away here. There's a big world out there, and most of us can't go and check out most of it ourselves. So in order to learn more about it, we employ, or we ask for the services of, people called journalists. Are there any of these people in the room? Are there any journalists in this room? Stick up your hand, really big. Okay, we've got some journalists here. Not that many, but a few. Okay. Well, guys, you're a little bit in the spotlight, but we'll be gentle. Um, you guys have a very, very very important job, and that is to tell us about that big world, wide world out there that we are too busy 
to concentrate it, to board, to go and find out about. And it's your job to go and tell us about it. And that process often, often goes right and sometimes goes regularly very wrong. <laughs> so we want to find out about how we can make that process a little bit better, okay? Because not all is well in the world of news. And I don't care about Rupert Murdoch's finances. This is not about the business model of news. Whenever I said to people I was writing a book about news, they went, oh, it's a terrible, terrible thing about news, how the, uh, you know, the business model is declining and where the revenues I don't care about the revenues. What I care is about us, the audience, and what this thing called the news is doing to us. Our grandmothers never complained that there was too much news. You wouldn't get your grandmother going, so, so awful, I'm just drowning in news, there's information everywhere. No, because there was just the newspaper, and you read the newspaper, and there was a thin little sheet, and then you did it, and then that was it. But now it's everywhere. Every couple in this room has had a, a smartphone problem, haven't you? You've got a smartphone issue in your relationship. One of you takes the smartphone to bed and uses it to avoid conversation. And, um, and that's an issue. Um, and, of course, the headlines are so gripping. It's so gripping. I've just got to check this thing, the airliner, the, 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 the crash, the, the, the cocaine of the politician. Of course, it's gripping, right? So we're using the news in all sorts of ways that no one ever did. It's come into the bedroom, it's come into our minds, and it's driving us a little bit nuts. Now, um, I wrote this book partly because no one ever educates this into how weird this thing is. There is a discipline in England called media studies. And if you say you're doing media studies, we'll go, oh, right, did you, did you not, not able to get a place on any other course or anything <laughs> like that? Um, it's the most important subject you could ever study. Media literacy is absolutely fundamental to democracy, okay? You cannot have a good society, a good dem democratic society, without a good media. Part of the problem of our societies, okay? because I don't know whether we do have the medias that we actually do deserve. But anyway, we're not taught how to do it. We're not taught how to read and maneuver through the web of half-truths, half-lies, deceits, omissions. No one ever tells us. When you're at school, it's considered very important to go and learn about art. So somebody will take you to an art gallery and go, when you're looking at a picture, it's this, that, and the other, you know, and you sit and you get a bit bored, but someone has a shot at explaining it to you, okay? It, Monet and Manet and Renoir, it's considered very, very important. And then when they've done trying to teach you about that, they go and teach you a little bit about art, and sorry, about, about theater and literature, and you know, what to do with, with Hamlet and all the rest of it. And it's all very, very interesting. But no one ever systematically tells you what on earth you're supposed to do with this stuff that starts to come at you. There's never been any class in this, right? But it's very, very powerful stuff. What are you supposed to think? And you know the first time as a child, you go, Mum, what's that thing on the, there's that thing on the kitchen? You know, get rid of it. You know? Or you hear that thing on the radio. What's that? What did they just say? You know, parents switch off the radio, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff out there and it's weird. Look at this thing. Very weird, right? It's really weird. Um, so what I want... No. I'm not going to leave the slide on that. I'm going I'm to let the slide sit on this one because uh, otherwise it's um, going to disturb us. But look, the promise of the news, those journalists here, when they first decided, I'm going to be a journalist, everybody else was going, I'm going to be a brain surgeon, I'm going to be a captain in the um, Air Force or whatever, and somebody, I'm going to be a journalist, right? What do they, what do they want with, with being a journalist? The dream of journalism is a very noble one. The dream of journalism is that if you get information... 
and you give it to people, okay, they will figure out what's going on in their societies, the good stuff and the bad stuff. They'll be able to put pressure on their legislators, and that pressure will lead to an improvement in society and greater flourishing among all human beings and happiness on this earth. That's the dream. The reality is that it often doesn't quite work that way. Um, if you really want to keep a population down, a little bit depressed, accepting of the status quo, unable to work out how the machine works. You know, basically, we live in a big machine, right? We live in a machine. Australia's a machine, and it's very, very complicated, and we rely on the news to work out, tell us how that machine works, and um, we rely on these journalists. Now, if you want to try and keep a population confused about the working of the machine, you've got two options. The first option, very well practiced in North Korea, is don't give anyone any news. No news at all. Everybody will go, mm, don't know what's going on, can't understand anything. But the other, much slyer, much cleverer way, quite well practiced here and in other parts, is so much news on the hour, in fact every five minutes, that you can't understand what on earth is going on anymore. There's so much news. Drown people in information in scattered, tiny little bits, lots of headlines, and the headlines, back to the headlines again, right? Every five seconds, no one knows what on earth is going on anymore. If I asked you, what was happening this time last week in the news? You're very clever people, but you can't remember. And I can't remember either. We can't remember any of this stuff. We spend maybe four or five hours a week on stuff, and once it's gone, it leaves no visible trace. We, can't, we, 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 we don't know what we've learned anymore. Okay? And that's rather weird, um, because it was supposed to be this tool that gives us a chance to grasp reality, and yet we can't seem to remember it for more than half an hour. So... What do we do about this? Well, we have to recognize that what we're dealing with is a society that's done away. There was, before the news came along, there was something else, and that thing was called religion, okay? Religion used to tell you what was right and wrong, what was important, who the main actors were, how the machine worked. It, it told you there was a whole ideology. The German philosopher Hegel said that a society becomes modern when people stop going to church and stay at home instead and read the newspaper. We're at that moment, well, we're long past, right? The news has overtaken religion as the prime creator of our sense of reality. It's to the news we go to figure out life and how it works and who's important and what matters and how things are, okay? It's an immense faith that we have placed. And I'm being a little bit of a heretic, okay? And if you're a heretic, you get a bit punished. But that's what I'm doing. I'm being a little heretical about this new faith that we've got, because I think the power is a little out of control. If, you're, if you want to start a revolution nowadays, even now, if you want a revolution, where are you going to drive the tank? Um, there's various options. You could drive the tanks to the home of the philosophers, because they're supposed to be very important philosophers. Maybe you go and drive your home, no. or you go to the poets, or the novelists, or the writers, or the social scientists. But no, you don't do any of that. You go straight to only one place, which is the News HQ, because that is where reality is made. So for all the talk about news no longer mattering, etc., you know that if you want to change the world, you go to the news. These are the guys who've got their finger on the powers that create our sense of reality. So an immense, an immense force in our lives. What I want, you to, what I want to do today with you is just take you through some of the areas where the news is questionable, doubtful, and we've got to brain up. The book that I've written is called A User's Manual, and that's precisely what it is. It's for you, it's for me, the audience of news, a manual for us. Now look, here's something about the way the news is today. There are some very, very important stories out there, Stories that we need to know about and understand patiently. Large bits of the machine are not going right. They're letting off strange, odd noises, okay? 
and we need to know about them. But the problem is that if you're a news organization and you put this image on your website or the first story in the news, your audience will collapse, right? No one cares about this story. And the reason uh, no one cares about this story is because everyone is mesmerized by Taylor Swift's legs. If you put this story on your front page, boom! the audience figures really explode because Taylor's got amazing legs and they're very interesting and no one cares about this story. So boring, so boring. More of Taylor Swift's legs. More, more, more. Okay, we want more of this. Um, now, this really depresses serious journalists. I hope the guys who put up their hands over there are serious journalists, right? And, and, and they go, why is the audience so stupid? Why are you guys so stupid that you prefer this when the earth is collapsing and you prefer the legs? Now look, I think we shouldn't, collapse, we shouldn't uh, worry too much. Well, we should worry, but we shouldn't panic. And the reason lies, uh, the explanation for our lack of panic should lie in the Renaissance. Because in the Renaissance, the Catholic Church was facing a big problem. It had to tell people some very, very important news. That news concerned Jesus Christ and his message of redemption to humanity. And they had to get that message across. And the audience wasn't really listening. You know, they were a bit distracted. So what did the Catholic Church do? it realized it had to work quite hard to get the audience interested. Um, and so it got some people to paint giant advertisement hoardings, also known as altarpieces, um, advertising the message of Jesus Christ and his message of redemption to humanity. But it also knew when it was making these advertising hoardings that if it put the truth and the important facts in the mouths of this fellow here. Can you see this fellow here? See my clicker here? See that chap with a the beard there on the right? Okay, he's Saint Jerome. Okay, if you put the most important truths in the hands of a big bearded fellow with a big book, no one's gonna listen, okay? Because people don't listen. Sorry for anyone here who's got an impressive beard, but no one listens to large bearded blows. It's just a little, whew, I don't know, it's a little heavy, right? So what they did is they put the truth in the hands of the Taylor Swift du jour. Here they are, here she is. There's another one, there's another one. And they really listened. In other words, they understood that if you've got an important message, you need to sugar the message. Right? You need to sugarcoat the message. You need to sex it up. Okay? Now, this really, really offends serious journalists. And they go, we're not in the business of popularization. Popularization is one of the dirtiest words in the canon of any serious people. Whenever uh, anyone wants to be nasty to me, they go, the pop philosopher, Alain de Botton. Pop <laughs> philosopher. The popularizing philosopher. Not very good to popularize things, because we know it all anyway. Well, I think the word popularization I wear is a badge of pride, because, of course, popularization is key, because how else are you going to get this story to matter in a democracy? See, in a democracy, it's not important just to have a few people in a library who know it's very serious. No, no, you need a mass audience. So in other words, unless you can popularize what is important, you're going to end up with a society that can only respond to what is trivial, because the trivial is often very popular. But the real challenge of journalism is how do you get a story that's as exciting as paint drying to feel as important as Taylor Swift's legs? That is the challenge of modern journalism. But modern journalists, especially the serious ones, don't like this at all. They run away from this. They, they think our job is to go and tell you very, very important facts and we lay it before you. And then when you don't read it, we despair and we lose some more money. And we accuse, this is the Guardian, uh, and we accuse you of being stupid. All right? That's not good enough, guys. The major trick of our age in a democracy is not enough to be right. You've got to be popular. So thank you very much for coming out here tonight, today. You, you've got to be able to take your message to a wider constituency. 
because otherwise you're not going to be able to put pressure on the legislature. And after all, that's what it comes down to in many areas. Okay, enough of that. Um, what I wanted to tell you, what I was telling you about uh, just a minute ago, was that there was lots of news, drowning in news. There's so much news everywhere, everywhere. Grandmother didn't have that much news. Now we've got so much news. Okay. The good news is there's not as much news as the newspapers tell you, as the news organizations tell you. They're always telling you more news, more news, the new, next bulletin, more news. Actually, there's only a very limited supply of stories in circulation. But news organizations exaggerate how many they are. In my book, I allege that there are only 43 stories in the world. Now, I could quibble, maybe they're 42, maybe they're 49, whatever, but no, 43. Okay, and they just keep coming round and round, and the news organizations keep dressing them up as totally new, totally new, 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 no one's ever thought or heard of it. But basically, beneath the surface, there is what, what gets called an archetype. An archetype is a fundamental story that uh, keeps coming round and that has maybe surface differences, but its structure, its innate structure stays the same. Now, the news keeps telling us there's too much news, there's too many stories, there's more and more stories, but we, the audience, have to get better at spotting archetypes. Part of what it is to be a sane consumer of news is getting cleverer at archetype spotting. Let me take, me take you through one example of how you can spot an archetype. Um, let me take you through three stories that are really only one story, but the news tells you it's three stories. Okay, so this is one bit of the story. Um, this is another bit of the story. And this is another bit of the story. And it looks like it's three different stories, but it's not. It's only one story. The story is this. It's a story of someone very, very powerful doing something very ordinary. And the effect of that on us, on our souls, is very nice. Because one of our great anxieties is that the people at the top don't understand what it's like to be us. So when they do something ordinary, whew, real relief. Um, and so that's the structure of these three stories. You see there, you've got... Prince William, it's going to be King William, maybe your king, maybe mine. Um, he's, he's wrestling with a car seat. It's amazing. He's going to be the king, and he's wrestling with a car seat. That's amazing. Whoa. And then there's our old friend, Taylor, and she's gone to the supermarket to buy some lettuce. Wow, it's amazing. She's like, she's a boo, and she's buying some lettuce. And then, same thing, same archetype. Um, there's the you know, son of son, king of kings. He could have been born in a palace. He could have had attendants. But no, he chose a simple accommodation in a barn. And the, 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 the moral is the same. It's the extraordinary and the ordinary. So look, you could do this with hundreds of stories, and I, and I give you some further examples in the book. But really what it's about is managing to reduce the morass and the pool of stories down to their essence. So we can navigate among them. And when they say, it's the news, it's the news, something totally new, you go, no, it's not. No, this has happened many, many times before. It's an archetype. So archetypes arm you against that pressure of the news system to drown you. Now look, there's something else that I want to talk about, and that is foreign news. Now, foreign news is an area where there's a lot of idealism. Um, when foreign news got going, you see, in the olden days, there, didn't, there wasn't any foreign news. We just didn't know what happened overseas. And now the promise is we'll get information from those people who live over the hills, across the waters, on the other side of the ocean, on another continent. And at first we thought they were, ooh, look quite weird and a bit hairy and smelly and odd-looking. But the foreign news will tell us about who they are. They will humanize the other, and we will become tolerant. Our prejudices will ebb away. There will be less conflict, less racism, less sinister motives, and that we will become a family of man. That's the dream of foreign news. It will, it will humanize us in each other's eyes, okay? That's why you go and become a foreign journalist, in part. 
That's the dream. The reality is a bit sad, because last week, 200 people died in a place called the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa, and you don't know and you don't care about it. Um, and the reason you don't care is not because you're evil, it's because you're very, very busy, and the news just told you this. It told you, and yesterday, 200 people died in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, moving on, another story, blah, 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 and you didn't pay any attention, and you went to make a cup of tea, and you were asleep 10 minutes later, and you don't care about it. Now, why don't you care about these people? Why, how can we be so indifferent towards the lives and fates of these people? Now, part of the reason is that it's very hard to care about someone who's just died when you had no idea that they existed. And you had no idea what their country's like. You haven't got any clue. Most of us, right, even though we live in this globally connected world, globalized world, and you know, you can go shopping and there's Zara here and the gap there, it's all global, etc. But in fact, we are desperately provincial. If I say Paraguay to you, you've got any ideas about what, what, what's going on in Paraguay? No, of course you don't. Bolivia? No. Solomon Islands? No. Um, don't know, you don't know about most places on Earth. Uh, Guyana, Guinea, French Guyana, you can't even tell the difference. We're all like this. Me too. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And the reason is that even though I watch a lot of CNN, the world's news, CNN, the world's news, I don't know about any of these places. Because we are globalized provincials and because the news parachutes us into places only for the disaster. A landslide in Brazil, a landslide in northern Brazil, a, disaster, a coup in Paraguay, etc. It'll go there for that. But it doesn't tell us the stuff like what it's like to have, you know, fall in love in Sierra Leone or go to the hairdresser in Paraguay. We don't know any of that stuff. And it's, but it's only, weirdly, on the basis of knowing that kind of stuff that we can care about people. Because you need to know the steady state of a place in order to be able to identify with it. It's very hard simply to go in with, with the disaster. We're not callous. We're not racist. It's just the stories are being told to us in the wrong way. Take King Lear. That's a story that's being told to us quite well. See, if there was a performance of King Lear here, and maybe there will be later, uh, we'd be very concerned about the death of this poor man and, and, and the ter his terrible troubles and the daughters, and it's all very sad. Um, and we might go home and not sleep very well and be thinking about it. So we'll be obsessing and really touched and moved by a guy who lived 300 years ago. In fact, he didn't live, he was made up 300 years ago. And, and we really care about it, but we don't care about the 200 people who died last week in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the difference is Shakespeare. But it's not just Shakespeare, because that would be really tough because there's only a few Shakespeare's who come along. The difference is storytelling. Right? We need narratives. We need stories. You can't care about somebody or something or some country without a story. But the news doesn't think that. The news comes out of a data information background. It thinks you can lay down in front of people facts like 200 people have died. The GDP is this. The interest rate is that. Okay? And the people will care. Well, we can't because we like stories, okay? We will be moved by stories, but we can't be moved by facts. And that's why what the news desperately needs, if it's to matter to us, especially foreign news, is art. Art is the name of the discipline that frames facts and puts them into a narrative that we can care about. Imagine if you'd read about Anna Karenina in the news. A woman in, uh, woman in Russia jumps under train after domestic problem. <laughs> Very boring, okay? No one, no one cares about that, you know? Madame Bovary, you know, a woman swallows arsenic after credit fraud. Um, you know, we, we, don't, we don't care about these things. We need a little bit more, right? We need, you know, 500 more pages. It doesn't have to be 500 pages, but what we need is some attempt to narrativize facts. Um, look, the art form that's closest to journalism uh, is, of course, photojournalism. 
Now, I'm a philosopher by training, and philosophers as a professional group are very depressed. If you gather them, they'll always complain, no one pays them, no one loves them, no one pays attention. But the really most depressed professional group I've ever come across are the photojournalists. Boy, oh boy, are they depressed. They, are, they don't get paid anymore, their, their salaries are really dropping, the, uh, uh, the, the very uh, venerable uh, photo agency Magnum is collapsing. Um, you know, they're really in trouble. But, but, these guys, the good photojournalists, do such an amazing job. Good photography is essential to understand our world. But the arguments for good photography have been lost. I was in a newsroom at the BBC a little while back, and I heard the news editor say to the photo editor, get me a picture of Venezuela. Right? <laughs> any, any picture? No, just get me a picture of Venezuela. Um, and, and then he went, the, uh, one of the low-budget ones. Okay, because there's tears about like what you can pay for them. You want low-budget Venezuela wallpaper. Now you don't. You know, that's a problem, right? So there's lots of images in news, but it's wallpaper. It's not good photography. What is a good photograph? I'm not going to talk about colour balance or framing or all the rest of it, because really, for me, what a good photograph is is a photograph that teaches you something you didn't know about already. It advances your state of knowledge beyond the state of knowledge that was there through text. It goes beyond text. Okay, and a bad photograph merely corroborates what the text already told you. There's a wonderful Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer called Stephanie Sinclair who went to the Yemen and did a photo essay on child marriage in the Yemen. Now, you think you know all about the Yemen and child marriage. Yeah, yeah, we know about child marriage, terrible, etc. But look at these photographs. I looked at that photograph for a long time. I was fascinated by so much. It advanced my knowledge. I looked at the little girls, and I suddenly realized that they're not little girls. They're little old ladies. The trauma that they go through is so severe that they become... 50-year-old women in an afternoon. It's appalling. Meanwhile, the men are not men, brutish, strong men. They're boys. They're lost boys. The whole situation is much more confused, pathetic, and, and, well, very different from what we might expect simply if we read an account of it. So that's what great photography does. It opens our eyes to what the world is really like. It breaks cliches. It's a cliche-busting medium. The argument for it has been lost it needs to be made. I try and make it in the book. We need better photography, not just of places far away, not just of developing countries. You know, this is a, a photo of President Obama. This is a dead photo. We learn absolutely nothing other than the fact the chap exists. This is a good photo of President Obama. We learn quite a lot, okay? This was taken by Pete Sousa, who's the White House press photographer, and he posts his pictures on the White House press site uh, every week. And we know that President Obama's a liar and will lie to get elected, because all politicians do. But what we don't know until we see this picture is that he can lie to have fun with the son of a White House staffer who wants to play Spider-Man. So that's a new piece of information, and that's interesting. And good piece of photography has taken us there. So photography as an information-bearing medium. Now look, something else we want to talk about. Um, by the way, you guys seem really nice, really do. Um, I was in Brisbane yesterday, it's very nice there too, but you're... Oh, whoa, whoa, do, do, do you know, do you, have you been reading the news? Have you been reading the news? Wow. Um, by the way, most of that story was wrong, um, amazingly. I didn't say that. Anyway, never mind. Um, no, Brisbane is a lovely city. Uh, its waterfront is very good, but there have been some failures in zoning. Uh, and um, I think it's possible to say that without getting the entire state per persecuting you. Um, uh, I think it should be possible to say that. Um, and I'm terribly sorry for anyone from Brisbane. Um, but anyway, Brisbane's a lovely place. But, but, but so is Sydney. Um, and I love Australia. I genuinely do. Anyway, um, good. So look, you, you guys seem really nice. And, um, and, and on a good day, I'm quite nice too. Everybody's quite nice. But you make a stunning realization about your fellow human beings when you go to a news website and you go what's called below the line of an article. 
and you make a stunning realization, everybody's crazy. <laughs> they're mad. They're furious, they're vindictive, they're unforgiving, they're out to get you, they want to kill you. It's, it's unbelievable what's going on. Well, um, I think, I, I don't think people are that bad. I think it's a little bit like a journal. By the way, what you see on the screen there is an, is, is an article um, below the line, uh, an article about George Osborne, the, the UK Chancellor, uh, a favorite hate figure, uh, and it's in The Guardian. So they hate him there. And so there's just, it's, it, they, they want to kill him. They, they want to take a sock off his foot and stuff it in his mouth. They want to hit him. It's just crazy, right? But, um, but I think it's a little bit like keeping a journal. You know how it is when things are not going so well, and you go up to your bedroom, you take out your journal, and you go, I hate everybody, and my life's useless, um, I, I'm going to kill myself, and, and your tears are running down, and you're, you're writing the journal. I'm being a little bit autobiographical, but you get the picture. And, <laughs> And then, and then, you know, you finish and you put the journal away and you put it back in the drawer and then you go and rejoin group life and it's really, really important that you don't uh, tell anyone and that no one reads that journal because there's bits of information there which will make it harder for them to look at you in the same way again. Um, now, uh, I believe that these, journal, uh, that these comment, uh, comments at, at the end of articles are a little bit like journal entries. They are effusions of feelings that are not to the core of the human being, but they are effusions and... Um, never read them. Please, never read them. Because we need to go out there and love and trust and be good citizens. And if, we, if, if they loom too large in our imaginations, we won't be able to do lots of the good stuff we need to do. So uh, we've learned some stuff about our fellow citizens that we needn't always know. The news wants us always to know everything about everyone. There are limits. Um, no comments, please. Okay, moving on. Uh, that was a brief point. Moving on. Um, here's a man who was uh, on, on the left... Uh, who was one of the most highly de decorated uh, soldiers uh, in the British Army, fought in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, instrumental in all sorts of things. Um, here he is with his seven-year-old son. Um, shortly after this picture was taken, this man, decorated soldier, great hero of the British nation, took his son, seven, and his sister, who was nine, and uh, took them to his car, a Saab, and got a large knife and killed them both, and then killed himself, and their bodies were discovered in a lay-by by somebody walking their dog the next day found the, the car. Now, the reason I'm putting up this story is that this story was the most visited story on the English language's most popular website uh, two years ago, the Mail Online website. Um, it got the record number of hits. People could not get enough of this story. They just wanted to hear more and more about it. Are we sick as a species? Are we demented? What, what is it about this appetite that we have for this sort of story? Because not just this story. You know the type. This is an archetype. And we want more and more of it. Are we sick? No, we're not sick. Um, the reason I know we're not sick is because I'd like to believe Aristotle. Now, Aristotle observed that his fellow Athenians loved and got a lot out of going to see works that were known as tragedies. On a regular basis, they left their homes in Athens, in ancient Athens, and went to gather in the theatres of the Acropolis, under the Acropolis, and went to see tragedies. Now, tragedies are just as bloodthirsty as anything that the Mail Online or the Brisbane Courier Mail, my new favourite uh, outlet, um, could gather for you. It's really, there's blood, there's guts, there's incest, patricide, infanticide, you name it, it's all in there, okay? Now, the interesting thing is that um, Aristotle did not believe that witnessing these stories of horror was necessarily bad for you. Um, indeed, he made a distinction, fundamental distinction between horror and tragedy. Horror is a set of horrific facts. 
A tragedy is those facts that have been narrated to you in the right way, that have been made into the right sort of story. And he believed that the great tragedians, like Sophocles and Euripides, are masters at turning horror into tragedy. Now, what happens when horror goes into tragedy? Two things. You start to feel pity for the tragic hero. You start to feel pity for this guy. Right? When, when this is told to you as a tragedy, you start to feel pity. So suddenly, you see, the news always wants to call everybody a weirdo and a pervert and a madman and a crazy and all the rest of it. They're the epithets of the news. Okay? But tragedies don't want to do this. They don't want to label somebody a weirdo and a pervert because they're trying to take you into a much... By the way, if this story, Sophocles, Oedipus the King, if that story came into the you know, offices of the Courier Mail, my new favourite newspaper, what, how would they turn that into a headline? They might say, sex with mum was blinding, okay? Or something like that. <laughs> Just a bit callous, a bit tough, you know? That's what they're like there, up there. Just a little bit tough, okay? Um, and, um, uh, but I think that this story needs to be told in a slightly different way, with greater subtlety. Because if you tell it in the right way, something will happen. You will start to feel pity for the tragic hero. So even though, yes, he did something crazy, he did something awful, he's a, a, a wicked person in a million ways, but he's a human being. And that's what tragedy takes us into, the humanity of the killer, of the mad person, of the person who's done something rash and foolish. And that creates, in the eyes of Aristotle, fear. Because we suddenly realize all of us are a bit nuts. Okay? All of us, if pressed hard enough, could potentially do something catastrophic and cataclysmic. And therefore, what we need to do is to be kind. To be kind to those who have failed and kind to ourselves. That doesn't mean you know, letting people off scot-free or you know, opening the prison doors. Often I think newspapers are afraid of this. The news is afraid of this. Almost as though to show humanity to a, 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 a killer is necessarily to forgive them. No, it doesn't mean it's completely different. But it's about humanizing the, the killer um, in the interests of a deeper understanding of human nature. It's not the other over there, the weirdo, the, the sinner, the, you know, the thing. It's all of us. We're all somehow implicated in the sins and wrongdoings of our weakest or simply often unluckiest uh, uh, members of, of, of society. So this is an example. You'll notice that this is a kind of theme in a lot of what I'm saying. It's an example of the way that often the news presents you with material. It presents you with like the raw ingredients. And if it just did that tying up maneuver, what, what Aristotle called catharsis, okay, it would resolve this, but it doesn't. It refuses the, last, uh, uh, the, the next bit. It merely leaves the emotion, it generates emotions and then doesn't resolve them, leaving us with a low-level angst, with a low-level sense of confusion. So it takes us to the edge of some very interesting and important truths about human nature and doesn't quite know how to catalyze them and make them into an object of catharsis. Now look, there's another kind of news that we love. We really, really love this kind of news. Car crash news. We love it. Love it. Big car crash. Lots of dead. Fog in a, in a commuter road. Sudden accident. We love it. But the thing, of course, we really, really love, and this past week has really shown us how much we love it, is an air crash. When a wide-bodied airliner goes down, it looked like everything was fine, and suddenly, bang, the news goes crazy. Everyone's tuning in. Everyone's fascinated. It's just gripping like anything. Again, are we sick? What's wrong with us? No, we're not sick. We're looking for the meaning of life. Now, in the Middle Ages, a standard piece of decoration for your table or your wall was a skull. You literally, you'd put a skull on your table, and so you'd look at it all the time, and you'd think, okay, I'm going to end up like that skull quite soon. I don't know when, but I might end up like, we'd have a painting in the hallway of a skull. 
standard piece of interior decoration all over Europe. There's a lot of wisdom in that because the thought of death is not something that should lead you to despair. It should rather refocus your priorities. It should lead you to think about the life you really want to lead rather than have ended up leading. It leads you to greater kindness because you know it's not forever and that there are certain important things you mean to say to people that you perhaps haven't said. So death, the thought of death, not as a depressant, but as an agent of refocusing in a way, as a way of making life more meaningful. This was a tradition, this skull, of what used to be known as a memento mori in Latin, a reminder of death. Now, we don't have skulls anymore. I think the nearest thing that we have is this. That's what we have. These are our modern memento moris. That's how we're getting in touch with the fact of our vulnerable existence and the proximity of death. You see, because the, the, the archetypal story that the news really loves is somebody who's quite fit and healthy, looking forward to plans, going off to a wedding, etc., and boom, a car slams into them, or a tree branch falls into them, or the plane blows up. In other words, normality and a lack of thought of death collides with sudden death. And that's what grips us. Now, of course, the news doesn't really help us in this area, because it doesn't go into the psychology of it. It doesn't go, look, the reason why we're telling you again that a plane has taken off from Perth, again in order to find a life raft, maybe in a life jacket, etc., is that you're mortal. You, the audience, are mortal, and you're wrestling with it. We're all wrestling with our mortality. That's what this is about. It doesn't tell us. It thinks that it's a rescue operation. It's not. It's a memento mori. Because most of us don't have relatives in that plane, but we're all mortal, and we're very worried and concerned about this. So these are our modern memento moris. And the news doesn't do us the kindness of acknowledging what's going on in our unconscious and making something, resolving it in some way. So again, the unresolved emotions that the news generates. You know, look, in many ways, what the news constantly does is create low-level fear, right? Low-level fear about swine flu and bird flu and Martians and UFOs and deaths and, and strange diseases and all the rest of it, right? Constant, constant fear. Um, because fear is great for getting the audience to come back. If you frighten the audience into something terrifying, they want to come back and find out where it's coming. Where is the UFO? How's the meteorite doing? How's it, is it coming? It, we need to know more about this. And the news wants to oblige us. The problem is it gives us a fundamentally distorted picture of what life is like. Um, you know that the news does this to you because when your car breaks down on a Saturday night and it's time to go knock at the door of a stranger to get some help, um, you know what's going to happen. You're going to knock at the door and the person will kill you and chop you up into small pieces and put you in the trunk. Um, and you know this because you've read the news and you've heard the news and you know that everybody out there is a murderer and a paedophile and a weirdo and a killer and that's what you expect. You know, um, there's no such thing as Australia, okay? Australia is made up and it's made up by the news, okay? So, well, here we are, we live in Australia, we, we know a few people, we've got some colleagues, we, we go out and we, you know, see people. But this entity called Australia, how it's doing, what it feels, where it's going, etc., that's something, that's a story that's told to you by the news. And the news is often quite worrying, partly because what it's doing is constantly picking up on the exception, on the anomaly. You know, I went to Uganda when I was researching this book, and Uganda's the country with the world's highest murder rate. Okay? And the fascinating thing about newspapers in Uganda is they never report murders. Very weird. You can't see anything, and there's no murders at all. We know that Australia is quite a safe place because there are lots of murders all the time in the newspapers. Okay? <laughs> they are the exceptions. That's how you know. Um, 
It, a, a few weeks ago, months ago, uh, it rained a bit more than usual in England. Uh, there were some quite large puddles, uh, which were described as floods. And the Prime Minister came and inspected them, and the country thought it was being washed away. And the newspapers were full of it, up to page six. They were full of the, the drama, and was the country going to survive? The floods! Okay. Um, I mean, literally, for Australians, it was a puddle. I'm not exaggerating. Um, and, and now, of course, they've gone away, and it's all fine. Now, why were these puddles on the front pages? Because Britain has got such a moderate, temperate climate. So, of course, if there's a puddle, you put it on the front page. Um, in other words, the news is full of the anomalous. But because we read the news every day and look at the news every day, we start to think that the anomalous is the normal. So our view of normality is fundamentally skewed. It's a basic point, endemic to the way we take in the news. Look, there is one area where the news is not about making us afraid. It's, in fact, very, very cheerful, very, very optimistic, and that is health news. You know that category known as health news, where they'll tell you all the time that there's about to be some amazing discovery that will solve cancer or cure Alzheimer's or get rid of kidney disease or whatever it is. And all you need to do is to wait for these guys at MIT or Stanford to invent these pills or maybe you want to take more aspirin or less aspirin or eat more walnuts or drink more wine or wear special socks or whatever it is. It's health news. You know, that area of health news, very popular, always popular, health news. The fantasy of health news below, the archetype of health news is unconsciously we're going to solve death. We're going to abolish death. Right? That's the kind of fantasy. Soon, science will abolish death. Okay? Now, maybe it will, but in 500 years' time, we're not going to be around. All of us, we're headed for death. Sure as night follows day. Okay? But the news doesn't want to tell you this because that's not very, you know, it doesn't sell you very much. So much better to go, what about those walnuts that you should be eating in order to make your heart go better, or that extra glass of wine, or that bit of chocolate, or that pill for Alzheimer's? Because right? that sells. It doesn't do us the favour that these guys did, the guys that the news replaced. Good thing about these guys, for all their faults, the good thing about these guys is that they were quite straight up about death. It's coming, you've got to think about it regularly, it's very sad, be a bit mournful, melancholic, but it is coming, no one escapes it, and prepare for it regularly. But no, we don't prepare because the pills may come from MIT, so no, that's been abolished because we've got the pills. Okay, the bad news is, guys, so the news goes, either you're going to blow up in this, boom, it's spectacular, whoa, uh, or, or these guys are going to solve everything, right? But actually, the truth is this, no, you're going to live to be about 82, and then your heart will give out quietly in a nursing home. Okay, that's probably what will happen to you. Um, but the news is not interested in that. The news does not, is not interested in the fundamental facts of the human life cycle. It fundamentally skews the life cycle and both makes us too optimistic and too fearful. Okay, so look, that's mortality, hope, death, all of that. Um, something else, something else. I'm summarizing, I've been doing that for very long. God, my God, I'm running so late. Um, okay, let's speed this up now. The other thing, if you get some, if you get some uh, serious journalists, I'm sure there's some serious journalists out there, and you ask them what's wrong with the world, um, what they'll tell you is always the same thing. They'll say celebrity culture. We live in celebrity culture. It's horrible, horrible. The kids only care about famous people, and um, they reserve particular scorn for this lady here. She's horrible. She's twerking, and it's terrible. And if only people were reading about the serious stuff, etc. Okay. Now, look, my view is about uh, uh, celebrity is that we're never going to do away with celebrity. Every society that's ever existed has had celebrities. Ancient Greece, ancient Rome, you know, medieval France, you name it. They've all had people who we would recognizably know as celebrities. Uh, people that you look up to, they're kind of role models, you take an interest in their lives, etc. We need this, because we don't know how to live, and we look up to these people, and we kind of 
you know, bat our own ideas about who we are in relation to them. It's very important. You can't do away with celebrity. So what we need in our society is not to do away with celebrity culture. You can't do it. What we need to do is to invent some new and better celebrities. Okay? We need to invent celebrities. Now, the reason why this is absolutely possible is that celebrities are manufactured by the news. Right? Kim Kardashian was not delivered to us by God or by a meteorite. She was made, she was made in a factory called the news. She was made in the newsroom. Okay? And that's why we know about her. So all those journalists going, oh, it's terrible celebrity culture. Oh, I must just go and look in the newsroom. It's like, guys, you're sitting in the factory that makes celebrities. But the problem is that the serious journalists and the serious news organizations, we hate celebrity culture. They don't like celebrity culture. So they're not interested in celebrity. Um, but they should do. They should just make new and better celebrities. And now, how, what's, a, what's, a good, what's a better celebrity? Um, look, I think a celebrity should be somebody who encapsulates the virtues that we most need as a people and as a nation, the, the qualities of character that are important to live a good life. That person, that famous person, should exemplify. They should be a role model. By the way, the, you know, the other day, apart from my comments about Brisbane, for which I really am sorry, the other thing that dominated my um, uh, interactions with the media uh, during my time in Australia was lots of questions about knights and dames. People kept saying, what do you think about knights and dames? Isn't it? And the, the view was always, you, you, it's horrible, the knights and dames, isn't it? It's a reactionary, horrible step. Now look, here's my caveat on knights and dames. Um, I understand that it seems a bit of a weird move, but in Britain, we've had knights and dames for a while, and recently they cleaned up the whole corrupt practice, because it used to be the prime minister's friend could become the knight, etc. Now, it really is relatively fair, and um, knights, the knighthoods and damehoods are given to people who do things like rescue inner-city schools and um, uh, you know, foster children and uh, do startups that are involved in education of um, disadvantaged children and firemen who've shown great bravery and all of this. And they become sir this and dame this and etc. right? Now, I think that's really very good because that's fighting against Kim Kardashian. Because Kim Kardashian is made up there by you know, Fox News and all the rest of it. And then we can fight by having you know, Joe Bloggs, who's rescued the inner city school, and he's Sir, Sir Joe Bloggs. And that's rather useful to have people that are battling the dominant media-manufactured uh, celebrities. So look, of course it can go wrong in a million ways in the execution. But I just, the reason I mention that is I think that if done well, uh, there's something very important about looking for different sorts of people uh, 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 to make into celebrities. So, you know, if I was making a celebrity, I think we find it very hard to forgive each other uh, uh, nowadays. So I think if I was making a celebrity, I'd pick somebody, somebody who lives you know, in the suburbs of Sydney, and um, let's imagine they're really, really good at negotiating conflict and at kind of getting people to calm down and see things from the other person's point of view. They're, they're not self-righteous. They're, they're just good at those deft maneuvers to forgive. And I think, okay, let's make that person into a celebrity. Let's have lots of pictures of them at the beach with their kids uh, when they go to the supermarket, um, and let's talk about them. And that way, forgiveness will have prestige and glamour. Now, look, I don't want to do down all celebrities. They're not all, well, Miley's got her strengths too, but, you know, they're not all terrible. Take this. This is um, Natalie Portman, the actress Natalie Portman. And recently, she went to the park with her child. Now, for those of you who've got children or haven't got children, um, going to the park with a child is really, really important. But it's so boring. But you have to do it. You, you do, you really have to do it. But it's boring. Okay? And it's quite nice when there are things that, you don't, that don't come easily, like forgiveness, going to the park, quite nice when a celebrity does them.
Because you think, oh, as you're sitting there with your, your kid getting bored, thinking, well, I'm sure Natalie Portman was doing this. Well, that's quite nice. The light of glamour has shone on an activity of which you're partaking, and it just helps it a little bit. It makes it a little bit easier. So this is Saint Natalie, the, Natalie, uh, the, the saint of taking your child to the park. Because, of course, the guys who the news replaced knew all about sainthood. You've got to have some saints all around behaving in certain ways so that people will be guided in their behaviour. We're terribly conflicted about celebrity. Um, half of the news, the serious bits of the news, want to do away with it altogether. Uh, the other kind are very excited by it, and we can't get our heads around it. So, anyway, that's what I wanted to do. Think with you about celebrity, a better kind of celebrity. Look, there's something else. Um, this is very apt for the weekend, because on the weekend, um, news organisations often... Well, if you're, about, if you're talking about newspapers, they'll often print for you a supplement, a, a kind of glossy supplement. It's a weekend nice supplement. And the idea is that you can take that on the sofa and go and relax and read um, you know, the, 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 the Saturday or Sunday supplement. So relaxing with a softer bit of news. Okay? This is one of the most dangerous activities you could ever, ever undertake. You know how sometimes in the news they've got these warnings saying, you know, strobe lighting or, uh, uh, you know, profane language, turn away or whatever. Now, on these Saturday and Sunday supplements, they should have a massive warning, envy, envy warning, because these supplements are full of the most powerfully envy-inducing capsules of information you can ever hope to gather, because it's full of the achievements of extraordinary people. The other day, in London, where I live, in many ways an ugly city, um, I was reading a, Sunday, a, a supplement, and um, I came across a story about this man. Now, this man is 46, first problem, big problem, because I'm 44. Now, for a lot of the time, when you feel like a loser, you can tell yourself, I'm still quite young. And those guys, you know, it wasn't till the guy was 39 or 45 or 52. And then you start, excuse starts running out. Because I've got two years to found PayPal, to be a major investor in Tesla Motors, uh, and to make $16 billion and send people to the moon, because that's uh, to Mars, because that's what this guy's doing. This man's called Elon Musk. This is his wife. This is his hair. It's got all of it. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and not, not least, not least, this was, a this was a supplement, this was a supplement that was telling us that Elon uh, has become an amazing cook uh, in, in Italian cooking. He, he does brilliant porcini mushrooms, and he cooks for his family, and he's got a lovely ranch outside Santa Monica, and it's all just lovely. And I'm going nuts. I'm not very happy to hear about this man. I'm not happy at all. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, when my friends say anything wrong, I go, no, no, nothing's wrong, but it's really wrong. I'm being corroded by envy. And the newspaper keeps doing this to me because it keeps introducing me to people who are either my age or younger, who've done amazing things like found hotels, sent people to the moon, found uh, companies, and I can't take it anymore. I'm going mad. I'm such a loser. These people are all such winners. Now, the problem is, the problem is that we live in a Judeo-Christian society in its ideology still, even though people don't really believe. Uh, and that, that ideology tells you that envy is very bad. You mustn't feel envy. Envy is very bad. But of course, envy is everywhere. All of us feel envy all the time, especially in a society like ours, where everybody tells you, well, we're all equal. We're all equal. Oh, yeah? So Larry Page and me? Yeah, we're all equal, are we? Yeah, okay. So how did that happen? So we go crazy with envy because we are taught that we're all equal and yet very, very dramatic changes in fortunes occur and we can't work out where we've gone wrong. Uh, and it makes us furious with envy in an unacknowledged way. The news is the foremost engine of envy creation that exists and it is entirely unacknowledged in its effects. Now, what do we do about envy? I think we need to use our envy. 
Envy is not always bad. I recommend that you keep an envy diary. Simple thing, you write down every time you feel envious, probably happen about five times a day, you write down who's made you envious and why, okay? Because envy is like a scattered jigsaw of your future self. Inside every envious attack is a clue as to who you should be but have not yet become. Often, the clues are a bit weird and a bit misleading, so you have to filter through the fog, you have to analyze your envy, but it is a set of clues. So don't sit on your envy and pretend it doesn't exist, look at it and analyze it. So I did this with Elon Musk. So I thought about it and I thought, do I envy his wife? Actually, not really. Do I envy his hair? I don't mind that much looking like I do. I mean, I've grown used to it. Um, this, uh, I don't really mind that he can cook mushrooms. I can do baked beans and it's fine. Uh, I don't mind, I don't mind. I, I could never start Tesla motor. I'm not, actually, if I really think about it, what I'm envious about is this man is courageous. Because time and time again, he was faced with situations where he had an idea and everybody said, you're a jerk, you're an idiot, you're crazy, it'll never work, and he kept going. He didn't sort of take to the bed and weep and think everybody's against him. He kept going, and that's admirable, and I want that. That's what I'm envious of. So you need to think about it, but the news doesn't encourage you to think about it because it doesn't even acknowledge that it's creating envy and that it's breeding this emotion all the time. So envy and the news. There's a big chapter on this in my book. It's a favorite, big theme for me. Okay. Moving on, moving on. God, we're late. Okay, moving on. Um, the more serious the news organization, the more it will tell you that it's got no bias, okay? The bad news organizations have got a lot of this stuff called bias. Fox News, Mail Online, etc. right? Those are biased and they're shouting and haranguing and trying to convince you of all sorts of things. But the clever ones, the good ones, the ABC, the BBC, they are above bias. And so what they do, what these guys do, is they don't tell you what to think. No, they get you the ingredients and they make, uh, help you to make up your own mind. That's the great mantra of the ABC, the BBC. We, we allow you to make up your own mind. And they're always balanced. They always want to be balanced. The BBC takes this to the, the nth limit, always balanced. If it's doing a feature on genital mutilation, it will invite somebody who's very, very against genital mutilation. And then in the interest of balance, it'll invite somebody who's very anti-genital, who's very pro-genital mutilation. If it's doing a feature on genocide, it'll invite somebody who's very anti-genocide, and then somebody, they'll dig out somebody who sees the point of the odd genocide every now and then, <laughs> always in the interest of balance. There's only one time in recent history that the BBC came off the fence, and that was over apartheid. They thought long and long and hard about what they thought about apartheid, and eventually they decided it was bad, and they could tell people that it was bad. But since then, they've not had an opinion that they've stated, at least not consciously. Um, you can tell from my tone that I got a bit of a problem with this non-biased point of view. My view is that we do need bias, just the right kind of bias, okay? We don't need to get rid of bias in news. We need bias, because what is bias? Bias is a capacity to interpret and make stories out of facts, okay? Uh, without somebody doing that, we don't know what to think. If we're deluged by loads of facts about you know, the oil pipeline that could be built or should be built or genetic research that maybe could be or maybe not should be, we don't know, we don't know. What I want to say to these very serious news organizations that we, the taxpayer, help to pay for in Australia and in Britain is, guys, can you please do some of the work for us? Please don't just, just leave it to us. Imagine a kitchen, right, where the, uh, the, the chef thought, a restaurant, where the chef thought, look, I don't want to unduly influence the diner. So no menu, I'm just gonna lay out the ingredients and you make up your own mind. You, you decide what, no, it's like, no, you cook it for me and I'll decide and I'll decide what I make of it. But no, there's this terrible fear that the audience just will be so influenced if you tell them anything that they'll sort of keel over and become believers in some sort of strange uh, philosophy of life. No, that's ridiculous. We need bias, we need the facts interpreted and we need this nowhere more 
than in the area of economics, okay? Because the serious news organizations have really failed us. Because in their concern to be very, very balanced and just facts and just the interest rates moving a fraction of a point here and a fraction of a point there, they've managed to miss the greatest scandal and story of the 21st and perhaps the 20th, story, uh, 20th centuries, the financial crisis, okay? They managed to miss that. Okay, because they were so balanced and so nuanced and so not, not looking at things in a particular... Of course, the greatest culprit, greatest culprit in all of this was the New York Times. Think of the New York Times. Think of its strapline. All the news that's fit to print. Oh, yeah? You sure? All the news that's fit... Yeah, all the, we've gone to gather all the news that's fit to print. All oh, right, okay, so these are the guys who were 20 blocks from the offices of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and Bear Stearns. All the news that's fit to print in 2006 managed to miss it completely. So, guys, please, keep your wits about you. They haven't worked it all out. Do not mortgage your intelligence to these people. Nevertheless, right, what the news tells us is that there are deep injustices and problems in the machine. Remember that machine I was telling you, the machine that we live in. There are really big problems in the machine, okay? And it tells us this in little increments, inequality, deprivation, this, that, and the other. Um, and, uh, but it doesn't really tell us the full story because it's so afraid of bias or doesn't want to really analyze the thing. So it just dri dribbles out facts, and those facts have an impact on us that in the end they drive us completely mad with fury and anger and confusion and we can't work out why the world is the way it is. Why? Why are these people still dying? Why are there still these injustices? We can't work it out. And if we're meek and mild, we'll sit in bed and we'll turn this over in our minds in the middle of the night. And if we're a little bit more energetic, we'll go and take a big placard, we'll get a big juicy pen and we'll write something like this. Let's figure this shit out together and we'll hold a placard <laughs> and will shout in the street, this man was created by the news, okay? He was created by the information and the rage that the news generates in us because of what it tells us about the way that we run our societies. That's what this man was created by. But shortly after this picture was taken, this man folded his placard, he was hosed down by the police, and he failed. The failure of this man is also the responsibility of the news because the news did not give him any good ideas, okay? You can't change the world without ideas, without concepts, without narratives of change. And the news assiduously keeps those narratives out of sight. At this point, people sometimes say to me, hang on a minute, are you a Marxist? Are you a Marxist? No, I'm not a Marxist. But there are lots and lots of ways in which we could change society. But weirdly, we don't hear about them in the news. They don't, they don't come up in the news. So people like this, when they go out and protest, they haven't got any ideas in their heads. The machine's very complicated. Okay? And unless we have data and information and stories about how the machine works, we're going to fail to change the status quo. And this rests on the shoulders of the news and of journalists. The part of the problem is, journalists, news journalists, the good ones, they know things are wrong with society, okay? but they often look for it in the wrong shape. When they think about society and what's wrong with it, they imagine that there are a few rotten apples somewhere. If you open the heart of most journalists and you look at what's written on their hearts, there'll be one word, Watergate, okay? Most journalists still, 30 years later, are obsessed by the Watergate paradigm. The Watergate paradigm is some very, very powerful people doing some bad stuff behind locked doors, secrets, okay? The journalist, as James Bond, going to bust the important people and changing the world, okay? That's such an exciting story. And to this day, young journalists will say, I'm going into this because of Woodward and Bernstein and, and, and Watergate, right? That's still the way it is. The bad news is that most of the bad stuff in society does not have that structure. For a start, most of the bad stuff in society is not a secret. It's not even a secret. That would be my answer to Edward Snowden. It's not a secret. It's publicly available. But 
no one cares. No one knows how to put it into a narrative. No, no, no one knows how to generate energy around it. That's the problem. So the news is obsessed by the few rotten apples, preferably if they look really horrible and fat and overweight and old man, and everybody likes to put some handcuffs on these people and take them away, and then the world will get better. Well, it doesn't, because most of the ills of the world are not the work of a few criminals. Okay? They're the work of unthinking ideologies that permeate through systems. They are systemic. But if the news is on the lookout for baddies with handcuffs, you can put handcuffs, there's going to be a problem the world can't change. Now look, to draw things to a close, ultimately what the news tries to convince of, us of is that the really important stuff has happened since the last bulletin. So it told you the last bulletin, everything that matters, and then the next bulletin will catch you up on everything else that mattered that, since that last bulletin. But the real truth, as we all know, is that not everything that's important happened in the last 24 hours. There's some very, very important stuff that happened 3,000 years ago, and it doesn't make it into the news. But of course, if we redefine what we mean by news, really what we should mean by news is information that is unknown in the present day and that is very important. And if we expand it like that, then this is news. Uh, it's, very, it's great news, it's very important news that there was a chap 2,400 years ago who wrote a book called The Republic, a man called Plato who wrote a book about the called The Republic, which is a vital tool to helping you to understand Canberra politics, okay? but no one knows about it. But if you put it on the news, wow, people think, gosh, it's amazing, Greek bloke writes this book. It will be very important. But our optics, the optics of the news can't see that. And so what we need to do as the audience of news and witnesses to life is just remember at all times that there is a lot of information out there that is not coming through the news. Look, it, it's called the news, the news, it's the news. It's not the news, it's some news. It's some news that some guys had a shot at assembling into a package of stories, but so much has been left out. Um, the thing about the news is that it encourages, encourages us to mortgage our intelligence to it. It says, we'll work it out, we've got all the news that's fit to print, you know, we know all about it. But of course it doesn't. It's only ever a partial thing. One of the things that the news doesn't tell you is that there's news out there, but there's also news inside you. Okay? All of us are news sources. All of us have got very important things to say to us and to the world. We are news machines ourselves. But the thing is that more and more we're so distracted and compelled by the news from outside that we can't listen to the news from within. Um, this is why it's very important to take aeroplanes which don't have Wi-Fi on them, because it's one of the few moments that you can actually talk to yourself, which you can't do. You know, there's an outbreak of insomnia uh, in Australia and other parts, huge rises in the number of people who find they can't sleep at night or wake up three, four in the morning. I think what insomnia is, is revenge on the part of all those thoughts that are very important, but that you didn't find time to have in the day, and they're coming to get their revenge at four in the morning, <laughs> and they're waking you up, okay? And the reason that we didn't have them in the day, in part, was because of the news. Because the news is so chattery, it's chatting, chatting, chatting all around us, preventing us from noticing that other news. The news informs, the news opens our eyes, but it also weirdly stops us seeing things. I got this bird here as a representative of what the news stops us seeing. Because he's small and you don't notice him unless you're kind of focusing and paying attention and he never makes it into the news. And so he's a kind of exemplar for me of what, you know, what gets missed out in the news. So, look, one last thing. I'm a philosopher by training. And um, philosophers think they're right a lot of the time. Very serious. Take themselves very, very seriously. Uh, but they're an embattled group because no one cares about them at all. 
Uh, a friend of mine is an academic philosopher, not a popularizing philosopher, but an academic <laughs> philosopher, uh, told me the other day um, that the average work of academic philosophy nowadays sells 300 copies. Not great, 300 copies, average work, serious examination of an issue, 300 copies. Uh, meanwhile, I was thinking about this, and the Mail Online, the English language's most popular uh, uh, news outlet, it gets every day 40 million readers. So you've got 40 million on the one hand and 300 on the other. Ooh, that's the world we're dealing with, right? That's the scale of the challenge. And I was thinking about this, one insomniac night, and then I thought, um, I thought, look, what about this? What about if you got the Mail Online, the English language's most popular news outlet, and you kept all the stories, all the same stories, infanticide, matricide, patricide, you know, celebrity, etc. right? You looked at all the stories, but you took out all the words and you filled them with words from philosophers. You got philosophers to rewrite the Mail Online. What would that be like? Anyway, we started this experiment a couple of months ago, and this is the result, the Philosopher's Mail. Um, it really exists at www.philosophersmail.com. And, um, and that's what we do. We look, at, we look at things. Look, it's a small attempt. It's a... It's a small attempt at trying to find a different way of, of doing news. Um, technology allows more and more of us to have a go at just questioning the machine, right? It used to be a monolith. You used to need 100 million, 100 billion to get anywhere in news. Nowadays, the smaller players are fighting back. My book is the theory of how we might come to have a better kind of news. I don't think that we have the news that we yet deserve, and because we don't yet have the news we deserve, we don't yet have the societies we deserve. But I'm an optimist, I believe we can get there, and my book is a small contribution to trying to get us to the stage of having better news. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Alain, for that race through the news. We've now got time for some questions and discussion from you. You'll notice that there are microphones in the auditorium, two down here and two up there. So if you have a question, do come along and uh, we'll, we'll try to get through some of those. Um, meanwhile, I just wanted to start off by asking you, one of the clearest arguments that you've made is the way the news is currently constructed is not in our interests. It's not good for us. It doesn't contribute to uh, us being better people or a better society. Whose interests is it in as it's currently constructed? <coughs> no, look, I, I would disagree. I'm not making a blanket judgment that all news now is bad for us by any means. There's some fantastic journalism out there. There's great work going on. I wouldn't want to... I, I don't accept that characterization. But, but, you're right, sometimes some of the news isn't good for us. Um, look, I think, I always start from first principles. What should the news be? In, a, in its ideal form, what do we news, need the news to be? I think that news should be information that is important for the individual and the nation to flourish. 
It should be useful information. Sometimes that will mean bad news, grim news. Sometimes that will mean sunnier news. It doesn't mean one or the other. Um, but what it means is always stories that are in some ways related to the question of how is this going to help the individual and the nation to flourish. And I could take you through an average newspaper or a website or a bulletin, and we could go through it and say, okay, how is this story conceivably related to flourishing? And some stories you see absolutely. And other stories you'd have to say, you know, I really don't know what that's doing. Now, the, the, the other question is, uh, you know, in whose interest is this? And there's very much a conspiracy theory around news, uh, and the foremost proponent of that is Chomsky, um, who tells us that the news is in the interests of the capitalist world order uh, and that it's designed to keep the population down. And, look, I've got some sympathy for that, um, but I think it's even worse than that. If it was a conspiracy, if it was merely a conspiracy, that would be quite good, because there would be a few people in a room, a few old white guys uh, in a room, and we could send in James Bond and kind of get there and bust the door open. But it's even worse than that, because I think a lot of it is unconscious and it's not even with a particular end in mind. Um, it's just, it's often a kind of unconscious thoughtlessness. So, yeah. Um, if we'll go take a question from microphone number one. Thank you. I just wanted to um, make a suggestion that uh, the Prime Minister consider to make you the second sir uh, of his announcement and then perhaps make you into a new celebrity so that you can uh, increase everyone's knowledge of your knowledge. That, Thank you. That's so kind. I should say, that's, that's really kind. Um, that's really kind. I don't mean this to sound sexist, but you know when we talked about Bellini and Taylor Swift, etc. I think that people have got to reach a certain level of um, visual acceptability in order to... And I just, um, I, I just don't think that's uh, possible in, in this case. But thank you so much. Very generous thought. But you've Very got kind. such great legs. Oh, thank you. I, I'm coming. I'm moving to Australia. <laughs> okay, we'll go up to microphone number four. Thank you. Um, Alan, you mentioned uh, that we are all sources of news, and I just wanted to ask you what you see the role of social media as in our current consumption of news, and whether you think that's a positive <laughs> or negative influence. Well, you know, there's a tremendous amount of optimism around uh, social media. Um, and... I, I love that optimism, but nevertheless, on a bad day, as I'm looking through my Twitter feed, I'm thinking, guys, are we, is everybody just retweeting links from the main big news organizations? Um, where's the original thought? Where's the original perception? The people I follow on Twitter tend to be people who are keeping their eye, own eyes open. They're looking for the bird, if you like, you know, that bird. They're, they're looking out for the anomalous thing. Um, but, but it's surprising how much social media, even though it was supposed to let a thousand million billion flowers bloom, how much a lot of it remains within the orbit of the mass-manufactured news machine. Um, so perhaps it's just we're still waking up how to use it. Um, but I, 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 it, it, it's a tool with tremendous potential. Um, I think it's still looking for better practitioners. That would be my view. Over here, microphone number two. Thank you. Elaine, I was a bit surprised the other day reading the Philosopher's Mail and um, I thought you were slightly unkind, actually, to um, our, our great um, mining magnate. Um, I know, everyone loves to hate Gina, but I wonder if perhaps 
if she's been strong enough to shake off the shackles of societies and societal expectations and so forth, and here we are somehow framing her in a way as though she appears to have a problem, there's something wrong with her, rather than celebrating her for having done so, just wonder if you had any... Um, <coughs> well, first of all, I should say, um, I don't write every piece. It's a team. I didn't <laughs> write that piece. Um, but I should say that at the Philosopher's Mail, we're really keen on nice news. We're really keen on being nice to everybody. And the reason for that is not that we think everybody's lovely, but we think that niceness is a scalpel that gets you to the truth more efficiently than insult and denigration. And so much of news is about just attacking people, character assassinations. And if you start off by going, the guy's an idiot, um, you're not going to learn anything. Um, and I think it's very important to hold off on judgment and simply take somebody through people's characters, even people like Gina Reinhardt that many people are very suspicious of. So we, we try to write a piece that would try and understand where this woman's coming from, looking at her father, um, looking at her attitude to various things, to try and create a kind of sympathetic portrait of the origins of views which are probably really quite uh, uh, objectionable, but they, they come from complex origins. So we were trying to humanise somebody who the Australian media um, uh, you know, can, can very easily caricature. We tried this a few times. We, um, we, we, we looked at Shane Warne, and we, we discovered that he was a philosopher. Um, you, can look, <laughs> you can look up that story. Um, look, we were, we were having fun. Um, but, uh, uh, look, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I, I think we were trying to be nice, but I'm, I'm sorry if we mi missed the mark there. Sorry. Um, From yeah, microphone number three. Um, my question is just about the, the type of actions that we can all take to kind of not stop the machine, but kind of change the way the machine's going. I mean, there's, there's clearly an audience for the, the noise that you hear in the news, right? There's, there's, people are obviously consuming it, and whether we want it or not, when I, when I go to the Sydney Morning Herald's website and I see junk, and I say, this is all junk, there's still something that makes me come there every single day, log in when I get to work and, and read that page. So how do I as a, a consumer of news and someone that wants to be informed, kind of change the way that the people are making the news, say, instead of giving, us, instead of giving our audience junk, let's give them something else a little bit different. Like, what, what can we do? I mean, I think, I think we need to start by being gentle on ourselves. We are facing, because um, it's very easy to, it's very easy to think you're an idiot, because, you, you know, I, I have exactly the same problem. I tell myself, it's not very good, uh, and yet, ooh, there I am, reading, you know, the stuff that I thought was not very good. So, it's very easy to think, I'm just an idiot. I can't surmount my appetites. You, it's, there's nothing idiotic about this at all. It's just that we, unfortunately, as human beings, have cognitive frailties, and it's very hard for us to overcome certain appetites. It's like if you're presented with a sugared donut, you're just going to eat that sugared donut. It's just, it's there it is, you're just going to eat it. Okay, you're not a bad person, it's just our cognitive mechanisms have not been developed. We can't resist it. Okay, um, and so therefore, what we need to do is to really encase our wills and strengthen our wills to deal with this stuff, um, because uh, uh, the ordinary mechanisms like, no, I'm not going to look at it, are not, are not strong enough. We need to lock away the drinks cabinet. We need to put something on the computer that will stop it from, you know, showing us that stuff sometimes. Um, it sounds weird, but it's very, very tempting. They know it's tempting. That's why they put it there, right? If, if there's a headline that says, um, you know, the American websites, you know, you know those websites like Reddit or BuzzFeed, etc., and they, they have things like, uh, uh, you know, six things you really need to know about sex. It's like, who's not going to click on that? 
going to click on that. Or uh, 10 things your partner secretly thinks about you. Of course you're going to click on that, right? You, we cannot, in the present state of knowledge of human psychology, stop ourselves doing that. Right? We're going to need iron wills. Um, so don't blame yourself. We are going to have to invent strategies to deal with the most powerful you know, news crack cocaine that's yet been invented. Um, uh, and we're going to have to take care of ourselves. We're going to have to do quite weird things, like say, I'm going to have a new Sabbath. Right? Today I'm going to have a new... What? A new... Imagine your grandmother going, I'm having a new Sabbath. I'm a bit overwhelmed by the news, so I'm having a new Sabbath. It's a new problem, right? We have addictions, right? We, we literally have addictions. It is often very hard to get through a conversation with someone without wanting to look at the phone uh, in order to see an update from somebody else who's somewhere else, and when they come to the room, you will want to look at somebody else's updates who's somebody else in the room, etc. And it goes on. We're just at the dawn of learning. We've got a big beast challenging our cognitive dignity, our dignity as human beings, we need to fight back against the collapse of our will in the face of these deeply tempting but often very unnutritious forces. We've got time for... We've got time for just one more question, I think. I was, yes. just, one, I was just wondering, do we still really need to read or watch the news? And um, why? Do, do we need to... Okay, this, that's, a, that's a really good question. I love that question because it, it takes us right back to basics. Um, yes, we do. And the reason we do is that our own senses are not acute enough to understand reality, okay? We are cooperative creatures. So what I don't know, I can go and ask somebody else and my intelligence will be doubled through my connection with another person. So we, are, we, we, we exponentially increase our knowledge of things by being communal creatures. Uh, and the news is a communal creature. It's a symbol and an entity of communal intelligence in its purest and best form. So we need it because we will expand our knowledge and it has a particular relevance to uh, democracy. We need to understand how society is governed. We need to understand politics and we need to understand economics. You know how young people particularly sometimes, they'll say things like, oh, I'm not interested in the new, I'm not interested in politics anymore. I don't, I don't like politics, right? That's a crazy situation. I always say to those people, of course you're interested in politics. You're just bored by the way the news has told you about politics. Let's keep that distinction. So good news, news when it's working properly, should keep us excited and interested in the fate and the destiny of our nation and should keep us optimistic about the human race, despite pessimism about our own mortality, which I flagged up earlier. Um, but uh, that's what the news should be doing. Um, if we're tempted to give up on news, what we're really being tempted to do is to give up on the news we have now. I think that would be wrong. As I say, we can do better. Um, I know this, I'm coming to the end, and, and, and so let me just sum up with one thought. We have to understand what the news does to us. It is playing with us daily in ways, some of which are really quite dangerous. We need to understand how it works, but we also, in understanding how it works, um, need to look forward to a future where things will be better, because they will be. We're just trying to figure it out still. For a long while, it was you know, a few guys with hundreds of billions of dollars who were controlling these machines. We are now much more empowered. And I wrote this book for us, for the consumers of the news, so that we wouldn't be such victims, in a way, of this stuff that assaults us all the time. It's, it's a little minor contribution to an attempt to fight back against this force so that we can understand the machine, humanize the machine, and try and build a world that's for us rather than for others. Thank you so much.